Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, this morning to Genesis 20. Imperfect believing men. Sodom and Gomorrah has been destroyed. Lot has now impregnated his two daughters with uh, these two men, Moab and Ammon. We will hear nothing more of Lot and his family until the nations of Moab and Ammon begin their resistance uh, toward the nation of Israel. We then turn back to Abraham today, continuing to trace the seed of the woman throughout the generations of these men of faith. And as we study the historical narrative of Genesis 20, it's going to look a little bit familiar to us. You're there, Genesis, chapter, uh, Genesis 20. Uh, we, were, we will co- cover the whole chapter today, uh, looking together, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this, And Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country, and dwelled between Kadesh and Shur, and sojourned in Gerar. So Genesis 18 tells us that Abraham had, for some time, been dwelling in the plains of Mamre, the Amorite, who was the brother of Eskel. And he had been there since Genesis 13, when the conflict between Lot and Abram arose that caused Lot to turn and pitch his tent toward Sodom, and Abram to go the other direction, dwelling in the plains of Mamre. Mamre and Eskel uh, were friends of Abram's. Uh, They fought with Abram when uh, the Eastern Confederacy came and took Lot and and, and conquered Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Mamre and Eskel were a part of the Confederacy that went and helped Abram uh, destroy those armies and take take back uh, Lot among the spoil. And the Bible tells us then that Abram journeyed from Mamre, which is in the land of the Amorites, of course, Mamre being an Amorite, uh, to Gerar, which was the land of the Philistines. Specifically, the Bible says, between Kadesh and Shur. Kadesh being called in Genesis 15 and Mishpat, excuse me, Genesis 14 and Mishpat, uh, and that was called the country of the Amalekites. So we have the Amalekites somewhat to the north, and then Shur being much more toward the south on the way to Egypt, if you recall, when Hagar fled, she was in the wilderness on the way to Shur when she found that well. So uh, in between them were these, these, these Philistines. They were a coastal civilization. It seemed that they had uh, initially migrated from uh, the north part of the Mediterranean, and they had worked down the Mediterranean down to this east side of the sea. And the text says that Abram sojourned in Gerar, which was a city within that, that people and that civilization. The Bible then says in verse 20, um, chapter 20, verse 2, there we go. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So we find that Abraham enters the land and he did the same thing in Gerar that he had done in Egypt some 20 years before, telling the people of the land that Sarah was his sister. And this achieved the same result as it did last time. The people in power in the land, this time not the princes of Egypt uh, who told Pharaoh and then uh, took her, but this time uh, Abimelech the king um, takes Sarah to be a part of his uh, harem, to be be his wife. Uh, Now, interesting things there. From this, we presume that Sarah is still very beautiful, even in her old age. We also find that Sarah is not yet pregnant, uh, at least not not visibly pregnant. Uh, There is a reason why Um, She could be passed off in this sense as Abraham's sister, uh, though the promise had been made uh, that she would have have Isaac. uh, We do not see that conception and then subsequently that birth until chapter 21. Uh, So Abimelech takes Sarah to be his wife to join his harem. Uh, It's pretty clear at this point that he has at least another wife, if not many more. 
verses three through seven. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, thou art but a dead man for the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? Said he not unto me, she is my sister, and she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocency of my hands have I done this. And God said unto him in a dream, yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore I suffered thee not to touch her. Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. And if thou restore her not, know that thou shalt surely die. Know thou that thou shalt surely die. Thou and all that are thine. So that evening, the Bible says that God spoke to Abimelech in a dream at night, warning him that he was a dead man for taking this man's wife as his own. And this is quite a startling twist in the narrative uh, that the Lord speaks to this king, warning him that he would be destroyed if he did not return this man his wife. And within the dream, there's a conversation that takes place. It begins with the Lord announcing his judgment upon Abimelech for taking Sarah. Uh, but then Abimelech responds and asks, Lord, wilt thou slay the right, a righteous nation? Several things to note here. First, the text specifically states that Abimelech had not yet consummated any sort of a marriage. Uh, he had not committed adultery. He had not defiled Sarah. Second, notice that Abimelech calls God Lord here, showing that he does in fact fear God. There is some sort of a manner of relationship here whereby Abimelech regards this, this uh, Lord as his authority. And, and third, he doesn't only fear God, but it, it does appear that he knows uh, God, knowing uh, not just the fact that there is this God who has approached him and said that you're in trouble, but then he actually retorts to God and he says, wilt thou, slay all, wilt thou also slay a righteous nation? Which means he understands the same concept that Abraham understood uh, going back to Genesis 18, uh, the idea that the, the soul that sins, it shall die, that, that uh, God is a just God and the judge of all the earth will do right, that God will not slay the righteous with the wicked. And so he recognizes some measure of the character of God within the scope of, of his retort here that we see. And in this, we are reminded of our timetable. This is an important thing to remember as we're interacting with these various nations round about Abraham. We know that by the time Israel enters the land of Canaan, all of these uh, people, this is 430 years later, right? From Abraham, or at least from, from Genesis 15. Um, we know that by that time, all of these people groups are absolutely subverted. But remember where we are in our time in history. Yes, there was much evil already upon the earth. Yes, Nimrod had built his kingdom and God had confused the languages and that the world was divided in the days of Peleg. And we're something like, probably something like 500 years past the flood. But remember, in the line of Shem, there are four to five generations that are still alive. And those four to five generations that are still alive are not the generations most contemporary to Abraham. They're all dead. Terah's dead, Naor's dead, Sarah's dead, Reu's dead, Peleg is dead. But guess who's still alive? Shem. Remember that guy that was on the boat? 
Shem is still alive. There's still a man who went through the flood on the earth. So we can presume that as the witness has continued, that we are not in an utterly subverted world. That there are others in this world who do in fact know and fear the living God. That yes, in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. We took that to mean that the Tower of Babel and everything that happened with the Tower of Babel and there was the dividing of nations. So people have migrated. But there's still a great deal of knowledge of the Lord on the earth at this time. So while Nimrod, among many men, no doubt, certainly sought to exalt themselves against God, and by this we understand that evil was still very much alive upon the earth, because evil, uh, evil exists in the heart of man, right? There's no getting rid of it until you get rid of sin. Abraham and his family would have been by no means the only men upon the earth who feared God. And it turns out that this Philistine, Abimelech, the king of Gerar, was one of those men. So Abimelech highlights two things. First, God's righteous character, by which Abimelech knew that God did not destroy the righteous with the wicked, that the soul that sins, it shall die. Second, he also highlights his own integrity, that he as a ruler of the nation had not offended the righteous character of God in this thing, at least intentionally. He had indeed offended in that he had taken this man uh, uh, this man's wife, but he had not done so knowingly. He had done so in ignorance. He had done so, in, if you will, in good faith. He had trusted what Abraham said when Abraham said, she is my sister. He had trusted what Sarah said when Sarah said, he is my brother. So that what he did, he did in the integrity of his heart. Now take note, as we mentioned in Genesis 18, this does not mean that Abimelech was sinless or even that in taking another wife, we presume he had other wives, that, that this is something that is in line with God's design. Uh, Abimelech was, was uh, uh, Abimelech, uh, as we understand it, God's design, one man, one woman for life, would have been in offense of that principle, as many men were, including Abraham himself. But what he does say with clarity is that as it relates to the idea of him taking another man's wife, defiling another man's wife, or even intending to do so, that he was innocent of that thing, that he was innocent of those charges, that he took this woman in the integrity of his own heart as it related to the idea of adultery or of taking another man's wife, because he was operating off of the information that he knew operating off of what he had been told. And to this, God, in fact, agrees, saying that he knew Abimelech had done what he had done in integrity without intending to defile another man's wife. And to this end, God says, he withheld Abimelech from sinning against Abraham and against Sarah uh, by doing so. And what this means, of course, we do not necessarily know, except to say that we know of God's capacity. We well know of God's capacity to influence both the heart and the circumstances of a man. We see throughout scriptures that God is not in the business of overriding the will of man, that God has given us the capacity to choose and to exercise our choice for or against him and in this world. But he is certainly able to weave time and circumstance together as a means by which to direct the choices of men so that God would not simply strip from Abimelech 
his desire towards Sarah, nor would he, he simply strip from Abimelech uh, his own capacity to think or to understand or to will, but he could certainly bring about various means and various ways by which to, to keep Abimelech from sinning against Abraham and Sarah. Uh, perhaps he brought circumstances that utterly distracted Abimelech for the whole of the day. Uh, perhaps he weighed upon Abimelech's heart other matters that would compel him to restrain himself. Uh, perhaps uh, uh, that God influenced the hearts of, um, of, of, of other people to, to bring about the circumstances, to bring circumstances to his mind that would, that would cause him to not be able to address Sarah and, and, and uh, um, seek to, to uh, pursue Sarah at that time because of other things, among many other possible ways that God influences the hearts of men and women in this world. But we know that God did not just override Abimelech's will here because even rationally, even logically, the whole point of the dream is to tell Abimelech that he's in trouble and he needs to give back the man's wife, right? If God was going to override the will of Abimelech to make him not consummate the marriage with Sarah, why didn't he just override the will of Abimelech to make him give back the wife? Why would he come in a dream? Why would he request that he do so? Why would he threaten or warn him that if he did not do so, he would be punished? Why would he, if he's overriding Abimelech's will anyway, not just have him give back Abraham's wife? But he didn't because he's not overriding Abimelech's will here. He has simply, simply brought about the circumstances to prevent Abimelech from doing the thing that he otherwise would have done. And now he's bringing him to this point of decision whereby he is commanding him to submit himself to the Lord and to give Abraham back his wife. And so God does this thing here, warning Abimelech, because Abimelech did what he did in integrity. And so God withheld him from sinning from Sarah, oh, against Sarah and against Abraham. And in doing so, commanding judgment upon himself that he would not even have known that he was doing in the integrity of his heart. And the reason why that's important is because the fact of the matter was, had he sinned against Abraham and Sarah, whether or not he knew, whether or not he had done it with a full expectation or integrity, the fact of the matter is, he would have been sinning. He would have defiled this man's wife. Sin is still sin, even if it's done in integrity. And because God's plan regarding the very savior of mankind involved Abraham and Sarah, God could and would allow nothing in heaven or on earth to thwart his purposes. So God acknowledges this mercy. And then he commands Abimelech to restore to Abraham his wife, warning that if he chooses not to do so, he would surely die. God would not allow him to take Sarah as, as his wife. He would kill him before he would allow him to do such a thing. So that brings us to the next day, verses 8 through 10. Bible says, therefore, Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their ears, and the men were sore afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, what hast thou done unto us, and what have I offended thee, that thou hast brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, what sawest thou, that thou hast done this thing? So Abraham, excuse me, Abimelech gets up early in the morning. He probably didn't really sleep well that night. And he calls on all of his servants and he tells them what has happened and they're all afraid because they too, it would seem, feared God and they feared the consequences of being on the wrong side of God. Abimelech then calls Abraham and confronts him about the lie that he told. What did I do, he asks, that you would invite sin upon me and my kingdom? 
not only uh, did Abimelech understand personal sin, but he also understood God's decrees about how the sins of leaders affect those that follow him. He says, not only would you have brought sin upon me, but if I had done this thing, you would have brought sin upon my kingdom. So Abimelech rebukes Abraham and he says, what have I done? And then notice what he says right at the end there in verse 10. What sawest thou that thou hast done this thing? So he says, did I do something wrong? Did I offend in some appreciable way? Or or is it that the Lord showed you something that compelled you to do this, right? He has learned now that Abraham is a prophet. He regards that prophetic idea. And so he says, did you see something that that compelled you to, to, to do this? And he asks these questions in a very rebuking manner. Abraham has treated Abimelech in this dishonorable manner, unless it is that he can say, well, no, I saw something and I was compelled to do this thing, which of course was certainly not the case. Abimelech is correct in this. This rebuke should have been made. Abraham is a great prophet of God, great enough that God would kill the king of Gerar before allowing him to take Abraham's wife and to defile her. Uh, But in this instance, Abraham did a terrible wrong both before God and before men. And so Abraham answers in verse 11 through verse 13. He says, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will slay me for my wife's sake. And yet indeed she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said unto her, this is thy kindness, which thou shalt show unto me at every place, whither we shall come, say of me, he is my brother. So Abraham says, no, I didn't see anything. This was not a a prophetic idea. Um, No, I don't have anything against you. He He says, I simply assumed that the fear of God was not in this place that this place did not fear the Lord and that because my wife is beautiful, that, that the people of the land would kill me for my wife. And we already talked back in, in, in the, the time when, when, when Abraham did this in Egypt about the idea of trusting the Lord, right? About the, the, the trust that he ought to have had in the Lord, that if God sends you somewhere, if God decrees something of you, that you trust the Lord to protect you within the scope of that decree. So we're not gonna talk about that again, but he is explaining the idea here. And then, of course, he, he says that the lie was only sort of a lie because they are, in fact, half-siblings. Uh, Sarah was the, the, the daughter of his father, but not the daughter of his mother. And again, there was no problem with that in this time in history. We would see in the law uh, in, in another 500 years um, that this would be something that God would outlaw. Uh, but at this point in history, we see nothing that outlaws such a thing. And a great deal of the problems associated with this are uh, problems that... Uh, are directly linked to genetic abnormalities and the like. So um, we would not necessarily see that as something that was a problem at this time in history. So the Bible says that Abraham lied by omission, as it were, Uh, not lying that she was his sister, but withholding the essential information to allow them to understand that she was also his wife. And so it would be a deep offense for any man to take Sarah from him. And this, of course, being in agreement with that which Abraham and Sarah had agreed to before entering Egypt. Abraham says that when they left the land of their fathers, when they left Haran uh, that many years ago, that they had made this agreement that Sarah would say this thing everywhere that they went. Uh, They did it in Egypt. And apparently, some 20 years later, uh, even after the disaster that was the time in Egypt, 
Um, they didn't renegotiate that deal. Apparently, they just kept it as, a, as a, still a standing deal for whatever silly reason. Uh, verses 14 through 18, then. Let's finish the chapter. The Bible says, And Abimelech took sheep and oxen and men servants and women servants and gave them unto Abraham and restored him Sarah, his wife. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before thee. Dwell where it pleaseth thee. And unto Sarah he said, Behold, I have given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes unto all that are with thee and with all other. Thus she was reproved. So Abraham prayed unto God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bare children. For the Lord had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So Abimelech takes a portion of his wealth and he gives it to Abraham in the form of an as a form of atonement uh, toward the prophet of God. He restored to Abraham his wife and he opened the land to Abraham to dwell where he pleases. And this is a little bit interesting too, isn't it? If a man is afraid of consequences, that man restores to uh, the prophet his wife. This makes sense. Uh, the idea of, of paying some sort of trespass offering makes sense. But Abimelech uh, truly goes above and beyond here as he pays Abraham so much, gives him so much, and then opens up the entirety of the land to him. Thus, once again, it seems to be here that Abimelech was a man who feared God. He's not just afraid that God would judge him, but when at once Abraham knew, or Abimelech knew that Abraham was a prophet of God, he treated him as if he was a prophet of God. He gave that man honor. He gave that man uh, the, the reverence that was due to the position that God had given to him. This is a man that fears the Lord, the man that fears the Lord enough to honor the prophet of God. Abimelech had no delusions of grandeur here. He knew that he was a king under God and that it was a small thing to give of what he had on this earth to the Lord and to the Lord's servant. And in turn, Abraham did what uh, the Lord said Abraham would do for him, which is to pray and to pray that his household would be healed. For since the day that he took Sarah, God had cursed the house of the king, had cursed his wife, his maidservants, all, and all that would bear children so that they were barren until such time as Abraham prayed for them. So he did so. And the Bible says that Abimelech's family, his maidservants, that they were all healed. And with that, we've walked through all of Genesis 20. Let's learn some lessons from it this morning. Four thoughts to give you from this passage of Scripture, which again uh, is familiar. We've already talked. We talked already uh, when Abraham went down to Egypt about the various aspects of uh, trusting the Lord and the Lord's commission and such. Let's think through a few other things, though. And the way that I'd like to go this morning is this. A reminder that faithful men are indeed flawed men. We're reminded in this passage that the fact that Abraham was a man of faith, tremendous faith, in fact, that he loved God, that he was chosen of God to be the man through whom the Messiah would come, did not make him a perfect man. A special man? Yes. From the perspective of God's intent and desire, from God having chosen him to be this man through whom this nation would be birthed, definitely a special man. God singled Abraham out for this special task and this special blessing, definitely a special man. But he wasn't something beyond you or beyond me as a human being. He didn't have some sort of special or transcendent righteousness. 
He had the same source of righteousness that you and I have, going all the way back to what we saw in Genesis 15. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And we have this tendency to elevate men whom God uses above themselves, to elevate them to a high level because God chose to use them, forgetting that the operative attribute of a man that God has chosen to use is not the man, but the fact that God has chosen to use him. Throughout the scriptures, God used righteous men. Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, David. Throughout the scriptures, God used righteous women. Sarah, Deborah, Mary, but he also used evil men, didn't he? Calling Cyrus my servant. Talked this morning about God using Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar to judge the nation of Israel, specifically Judah. And not only did he, has he used righteous men and righteous women and unrighteous men and unrighteous women, but God has used animals, Balaam's donkey, to accomplish his purposes. Now, this did not redeem the character of Cyrus, right? Cyrus was not made a righteous man because God chose to use him. Nor did it make the donkey any more than a donkey because God chose to use the donkey. The point is not the man or the woman or the animal or the object. The point is the God who chose to use them. If God chooses to use you, does that give you that special blessing of being used? Yes. Does that make you anything more or less no. You have been chosen to be used. Abraham was a faithful man, and God used him. By the way, Abimelech appears to have been somewhat of a faithful man too. But this does not make them perfect men, does it? But rather men who, through their faith in the living God, were faithful men. And perhaps as you sit here today, Christian, you find yourself frustrated with your own flaws. How can you possibly be a faithful man? How can you possibly be a faithful woman? You're too flawed for that. But that isn't what the Bible says, is it? Your heart might say that. Jeremiah 17, 9, reminding us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Your emotions might say that, convincing you that your flaws make you unusable and unworthy. And here's where our emotions do get something right. You are unworthy. Make no mistake about that. And you are. There's not a thing that you or I have in ourselves that is worthy of God. There's not a thing in and of ourselves that makes us worth God using in that sense. But what our emotions often forget is that our worthiness is not the standard, is it? Christ's worthiness is the standard. That when you and I were without strength, the Bible says, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus died for you. God accepted Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross as payment for your sin on your worst day, not on your best. The Father poured his anger against sin out on his son, Jesus Christ. 
The Father punished His Son, Jesus Christ, for your offenses. The Father satisfied His righteousness with His Son's blood. And if you have placed yourself under that blood by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, then you are, Colossians tells us, complete in Him. You have nothing more to earn. You cannot earn it. You have nothing more to be worthy of. You cannot be worthy of it. Christ has earned it. Christ is worthy. And you have, by faith, placed yourself under the blood of Christ. Been placed under the blood of Christ. Be more specific. Be more accurate. You are flawed, but you are complete in Him. And as we'll talk about in a moment, we ought to be growing in grace. We ought to be learning. We ought to be progressing in our sanctification unto obedience. But your flaws do not make you unfaithful. They make you human. And that brings us then to our second point. First, faithful men are flawed men. Second, testimony is rooted in integrity, not perfection. If we are all flawed men and women, how is it then that we can be a good testimony of the Lord to others? How is it that we can make ourselves most usable to a righteous God? And the natural of course, answer, of course, the, the carnal answer, the answer that would come from our hearts, how is it if I am a flawed man, how is it that I can be a good testimony for the Lord? How is it that I can do good things for the Lord then? The natural carnal answer is, well, fake it. Pretend you're not flawed, right? Present yourself as perfect. And you've got a good testimony. Fake it until you make it, as they say. Live a lie. Look great on the outside while being filthy on the inside, but it doesn't matter because at least you look great on the outside. Present a false front for the world to see and attempt to dupe people into believing that the Christian life is something other than what it is. Now that's what the carnal heart compels us to do. Fake it. Pretend. To whatever degree you are a flawed person, just pretend as though you're not and create this false front that everyone can see. But see, here's the thing. It isn't your perfection, Christian, that testifies of the truth of Christ. It isn't this church's sinlessness that testifies of the truth of Christ. Christ's perfection testifies of his truth. Christ's sinlessness testifies of his truth. What I can do to testify of the truth of Christ is to be man, a man. What we can do is be a church of integrity. When who I am is who I present myself to be, I refuse to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I desire and intend to live a life of obedience. And when I falter and when I fail, I do not pretend that I don't. I do not live to cover it up, but I acknowledge, I repent, I make it right, and I get back to being obedient. I seek the Lord in humility, allowing Christ to perfect himself in me. I trust God's word. I obey God's word. And as he does his great work in me, I bear the fruit of the spirit. I'm conformed to the image of Christ. And then I have testimony. God testifies of himself to others in me, through me. Abraham was a great prophet. But I hazard to say that no man would have known he was a great prophet by his actions on that day that he stood before Abimelech. In fear, he yielded his integrity to protect himself. 
And this didn't destroy his faith. This did not make him unusable. This did not destroy his relationship with God. But this is an account that isn't fun to read. And it's an account that isn't fun to preach because here I have to take a great man of the faith, the, the, one of the progenitors of the faith, one of the forefathers of our faith, and I have to show that he brazenly lied to the Philistine king, willing even to watch the entire kingdom fall to the consequences of their leader's sin than to risk his life by telling them that Sarah was his wife. And that's not a good thing. There's no testimony in that. On that day, Abram showed no one the power of his God. I would have enjoyed preaching this much more if he had stood in his integrity on that day. He had stood and said, this is my wife and trusted the Lord and said, you know, I learned 20 years ago that it's probably not a good thing to lie about this because it puts everyone in a really awkward place. And I know that the Lord had advocated for me then and I learned a lesson and I walked away saying, well, if the Lord advocated for me after Pharaoh took my wife, then I'm sure he would have advocated for me before Pharaoh took my wife. So we're just gonna change our modus operandi here. We're just gonna change how we go about doing this and we're just gonna tell everyone that Sarah's my wife and we're just gonna stand in our integrity. It would have been nice to have preached that this morning in Genesis 21 after what I had to preach before, earlier in the book of Genesis. But I can't preach that today because Abraham did not stand in his integrity on this day. And that does not challenge the fact that he was a prophet of God. It does not challenge the fact that he was blessed. It does not challenge the fact that he was a man that God would use, but it did challenge testimony on this day. And that leads us to our third point. I would have loved to have preached that message where Abraham learned from his mistakes. See, because all men make mistakes, but not all men learn from them. All men are flawed. We seek unto perfection, but in the meantime, we're not going to be that. We can at least stand in our integrity, though. We all make mistakes, from the greatest of us to the least. But what is really frustrating about this day as we study Abraham is that he had done this before. He had lied about his wife and Pharaoh took her and the, had the Lord not plagued them, he would have lost her then. Christian, faithful men are flawed men. You're gonna be flawed. I'm gonna be flawed. It's gonna happen. We're gonna make mistakes. We're gonna be in this sinful body until the day the Lord takes us home but let's learn from our mistakes. Let's keep improving as we are walking. Let's make our mistakes, acknowledge our mistakes, repent of our mistakes, and then be determined to learn and to grow from them. When Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, in Philippians chapter three, he told them of his determination that he would count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, his Lord. And among men, Paul had an amazing testimony of this, an amazing testimony of setting all things aside for Christ, being hated and persecuted and maintaining the faith in, a, in an amazing way. But what's interesting is after this expression of his determination that he would attain unto this the, the reality of Christ's suffering and loss and the resurrection of the dead. He says this in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 12. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, 
but I follow after. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those which, uh, things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if, any, if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. So Paul says here, right after saying that he counts all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus his Lord, if by any means he might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, he says, I have not yet attained unto the perfection of that resurrection. I have not yet attained unto those things, but I seek after them. He has not attained the thing that he seeks. He follows the kind of selfless, selfless yieldedness to the Spirit of God, which he so very much desired. And though he had not counted himself to have apprehended it, he says the one thing he does is he sets those things which are behind behind him and he presses forward to those things which are before. He releases those areas of mistakes, those, those, those areas of sin, and he seeks to do better. He presses toward the mark for the prize of the person of Christ. And then he says, we should all be thus minded. If we are in Christ, we ought to be minded to pursue Christ, Christian. If you are in Christ, the fact that you are still a sinner is not an excuse to sin. It is a reality in our lives. But we ought to, if we are in Christ, be minded to pursue Christ. And where we've already obtained, where we have already found victory, where we have already found success, live in it. Don't keep making the same mistakes, Christian. Live up to what you have learned. Seek passionately to grow in those areas that you haven't. And Christian, if you've been on the hamster wheel of error, making the same mistakes again and again, knowing it's wrong, but doing it anyway, it's time to stop. Repent of your sins. Submit to Christ. If you need help, get the help you need. But don't keep going back to the same mistakes again and again and again. And finally, this morning, Switching gears for this last one a little bit. Faith may be in places you would never expect. So Abraham comes to Gerar and he lies to Abimelech because he's convinced that the fear of God was not in that place. Maybe he had some reason to assume this. Uh, maybe there were idols in the land. Maybe the people were acting in a manner that was unbefitting the fear of the Lord. We, we do not know why it was that Abraham came to the conclusion uh, that he came to, uh, perhaps we would have come to the same conclusion if we were there uh, looking for ourselves. But for whatever reason, Abraham assumed that they did not fear God. But the fact of the matter is, as it appears in the text, it seems as though Abraham, Abimelech did in fact fear God. And in this, we learn a final important lesson. Faith may be in places you would never expect. Now, by this, I do not mean that a man living in abject evil is somehow a secret believer. It's not what I'm saying this morning. But maybe that person who does not look how you would expect or act how you would expect or live where you would expect or work where you would expect has a measure of faith that you would have never expected. And the point is simply this. Let's be careful, Christian, with our assumptions. The irony of this whole chapter is that the chapter never even needed to happen, did it? 
Abimelech feared God. His people apparently feared God. But based upon his own assumptions, Abraham both feared and then he lied to these men. And not only could Abraham have trusted the Lord, but unbeknownst to him, Abraham actually could have stepped into that land and been entirely comfortable trusting the people of the land to fear God and to leave him and his wife alone. And Christian, let's be sure that we're careful not to judge others based upon our assumptions of them. But rather allow people, allow churches, allow ideas to stand or fall before the Lord on their own two feet. Not before your assumptions of who they are or what they are. Not because of their labels, not because of their looks, not because of their position. And you might just find faith in places that you would never expect. So today we learn that Abraham and in fact Abimelech were faithful men, but still flawed men. And we thank God that God is able to use faithful but flawed men, for indeed we are all flawed. May that not change the fact that we desire to be, that we press toward the mark unto the, the, the intent to be faithful. May it not change the fact that in those areas where we have obtained, that we would live in them, that we would trust the Lord to show us in those areas where we have not obtain, uh, attained, and that we would continue to press toward the attainment of those things that he has asked us to do.